0: with me this morning, Bokertov, again, again, again. It is a wonderful, beautiful, amazing day. Uh, the sixth and seventh Aliyah today of Parashah Beshlach. And uh, we're going to be concluding the Parashah with God's help today. And it is also prep day as we are getting ready for the Holy Sabbath. And in today's uh, Aliyah, the Shabbat happens to be a significant topic, so praise God for that, and uh, we'll be talking about that obviously today with God's help, Baruch Hashem. So it's a joy to be with everybody. It's a bright, sunny, wonderful, awesome uh, day. Um, hold on one second. Let me turn on a light. I forgot to turn on a light. It's live. It's live TV. So things happen. Hold on one second. <clears throat> All right, there we go. Slicka. Sorry about that. All right. <clears throat> Hope you're being beautiful. Hey, listen, we have people coming down, our wonderful uh, Lapidniks from northeast Oklahoma, the Tulsa area, coming down. It's going to be an amazing Shabbat to have them here. We love hosting our Lapid families. Hey, if you are in uh, northeast Oklahoma, if you're in Tulsa, if you're in Kansas City, Independence, Missouri, if you're in Houston, Texas, if you're in New York City or the surrounding areas, if you are uh, in uh, Southeast Virginia Northeast North Carolina, uh contact us. We have Lapide Nicks there, Lapide groups there, and we want to connect you with them, Bezrat Hashem. And uh, you know, we have so many people coming forward. There's other Lapid groups, Be- Bezrah Hashem that are forming everywhere, so let us know where you are, and uh, we'll try to find somebody. We have a family in Kentucky, right? We have families in Kentucky. We have uh, pl- people everywhere. And so, Baruch Hashem. All right, before we get started to the Aliyah, we are, by the way, going to be in Parashah Beshalak, as I said. We're chapter 16. If you have the Arts Chumash, we're on page 385. <clears throat> so I want to make a, a public service announcement. And I, with God's help, we'll we'll make a uh, a post about this on our Sarshelom uh, synagogue page uh maybe not today cuz today's going to be uh, uh you know it's prep day so it's a little hectic but maybe later but I thought I should make a statement here to help everybody okay uh so lately there has been an uptick um, that I've noticed anyway as uh, unscientifically anyway that um, there has been an uptick in the, uh, the hatred of the Talmud, and so you got people that have contacted me, I've had two or three people contact me about, so-and-so said that Talmud is evil, so-and-so said that uh, they blaspheme Yeshua, so-and-so said that it's pedophilia in there, and oh, they, they, they want to murder Gentiles, and just all this nonsense, nonsense, okay? So I thought I should say something about it um, to help everybody. First of all, um, I teach a class, I've taught a class, it's online, The History and Effects of Anti-Semitism. It's an eight-week course. It's critical that everybody take that course. We've posted it before, and and probably next week we'll post it again. I think everybody on the planet should read, should watch that, And uh, because the whole purpose of the uh, class is to expose the deep roots of anti-Semitism that ex- exist in the hearts of people, particularly believers in the Messiah, and uh, even the ones that love Israel and are Zionists. I totally understand. I totally understand where that can be confusing, but you just have to trust me, and this class explains it, and the, more importantly, the class uh, helps people to get delivered of that. But the book that we use for the class is this book. I'm going to show it on the screen here so you can get a copy. Some of you already have it, but you want to get this copy. It's a convenient, a convenient Hatred. See that right there? All right, I'm gonna hold up for a second so y'all can write down the uh, name. A convenient hedge. You need to get this book. It's a great book. In this book, you will learn lots of fascinating and wonderful history. And some of the history that you learn will be what I'm about to tell you. Okay? So you see the book. Know what? If you don't, if you need the title, you can always uh, contact us later. So what you find is about the 1300s. There the The Church discovered the Talmud for the very first time, and it, it the Talmud had already been in existence for at least five hundred years um and nobody in the church world knew what was in the Talmud, but there was all these uh slander and libel about it. they said it it blasphemed Mary, blasphemed Yeshua, blasphemed everybody, said all had, had, it had was full of incantations and other kind of evil, you know like like what you read online today. And so the the church came against it with a vengeance, and they burned the Talmud in the city square. And in fact, as uh, some of my talmudim were sharing last night at our study, that evidently that became one of the great festivities of the uh, you know the uh, New Year's uh, celebration that they would take the Talmud and other Jewish literature and they burn it in the city square. Had no idea what was in it. Okay, so here's the bottom line. I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I want you to understand number one. First of all, all that nonsense you hear is just that. It's absolute nonsense, okay? It's ridiculous stupidity. There is literally like one section in the entire Talmud that deals with the Messiah, uh, with Yeshua specifically. That's it, okay? Literally like two or three sentences, number one. Number two, you have to understand something. Every single person who is online and on the videos and all the, the... the the practically neo-Nazi Aryan nation stuff that you... And that's really what it is. It's 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 deep, you know, uh, protocol of the elders kind of uh, anti-Semitism. All of those people are non-Jews. Every one of them. Okay, number one. Number two, uh, they have no idea what they're talking about. None whatsoever. Absolutely have no idea. What they know about it is what they read in a, some article on Facebook or whatever, okay? So here's what you need to know. Somebody says, well, I've read the Talmud and you should know that there's all kinds of heresy in it. First of all, I want to educate you a little bit about the Talmud. There are actually two Talmuds. So the question would be, are you talking about the Talmud Yerushalami or are you talking about the Talmud Bavli? Okay, that would be question number one. They're going to have no idea what you're talking about. Secondly, you're going to say, what's the address? Like, what daf is that on? They're going to have no idea what you're talking about. All right, so a daf is a page, a folio of the Talmud. It's front and back Hebrew. There are two thousand seven hundred and eleven dafim in the Talmud. Okay, in the Talmud Bavli, two thousand seven hundred and eleven. If you were to study a daf a day, it would take you literally just to read through it. Not even I should I sit not say study. I said read it. Let me, let me change my say because if you study will take you a much longer time. If you're just going to read a daf a day, that's all you're going to do. Just read through it. It'll take you about seven years. Some say seven and a half years to read the whole thing. There are approximately, estimated between 1.4 and 2 million uh, words in the Talmud. I'm going to go with 1.4. Why? Because the Torah scroll has 600,000 letters to represent the Jewish souls. And if there are 1.4 words in the Talmud, that would represent the 1.4 converts that came out of Mitzrayim. But that's neither here nor there. There are at least 1.4 to 2 million words in the Vilna edition of the Talmud Bavli, okay? Uh, If you were going to study the first tractate of Talmud, which is Barakot, if you were going to read a Daf a day, it would take you a little over a year just to read through that one tractate alone, okay? Now, that does not not include, that does not include, when I talk about 1.4 million words, that does not include the commentary of Rashi, and all the other various commentaries, etc., etc., etc. So you can understand, this is a monumental work. And so the idea that somebody on Facebook, or somebody on Fakebook or somebody on uh, whatever, whatever, Google, or YouTube, who's a a non-Jew, has no background in Torah whatsoever, the idea that you would listen to them about anything to do with the Talmud is... Patently absurd. And so, what should you do? You should ignore that nonsense. Okay? And if you have a question, and you have a, a particular statement that you actually read in a legitimate Talmudic piece of work, like you have the book in your hand and you're reading something, then ask me. But otherwise, those people, that that stuff has been going on since the 1300s, okay? And you're going to run into that. You're going to run into hate. You're going to run into Nazism. You're going to run into anti-Semitism everywhere. So just just be calm, okay? Yeshua was a Pharisee. Yeshua followed the oral Torah. There's no dispute about that whatsoever. And so, um, um, anyway, what you hear in this broadcast comes, a lot of it comes from Talmudic literature, Midrashic literature, Zorastic literature, and everybody hears these things and are like, oh my gosh, that that is so much what Yeshua was saying. That is That sounds like what the Apostle Paul was trying to write. And they, Of course. Of course. It's, uh, it's very, very beneficial and very, very good. So I just want to help you. I hope that helps you. Give me a thumbs up if it helps you. Baruch Hashem. Uh, all right. So we're going to be on page 385 of the Artsko Chumash, getting right underway here. By the way, we may have a baby born today. So... Shlomo's baby boy may be coming forth, and uh, hopefully it's today, maybe it be tomorrow. Baruch Hashem. So uh, send up uh, your prayers for them. Adonai <speaking in> te'iluna <Hebrew> Hashem spoke to Moshe saying, I have heard the complaints of the children of Israel speak to them saying, uh Yisrael bear Adonai that they shall in the morning they shall receive say, bread and in, uh, in the afternoon they shall eat meat. And you should know that I am Hashem your God. It was towards the evening that the quail descended and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. The layer of dew descended, and behold, upon the surface of the wilderness was something thin, exposed thin and frost on the earth. The children of Israel saw and said to one another, It is food, for they did not know what it was. Moshe said to them, this is the food that Hashem has given you for eating. This is the thing that Hashem has commanded. Gather from it for every man according to what he eats, an omer per person according to the number of the, of the people, everyone according to whoever is in his tent shall you take. All right, so I want to share something with you, first and foremost, that Rebetzin has um, shared with some of the ladies. And uh, I read this last night as I was going through some readings on this parasha from Rabbeinu Bachya, And I came across (coughs) this source. And uh, so uh, Rebetzin Shoshana was uh, like, yeah, 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 let's uh, talk about that. And she's going to make sure that this gets posted on the the sisterhood sites or whatever. But I want to share with you. Uh, First and foremost. Why is it that it was necessary for the Messiah to be resurrected on Yom Rishon, on the first day of the week? Um, Obviously, that that does not in any way, shape, or form change the Shabbat. The Shabbat is always on the seventh day of the week. But why was it necessary? Because Hashem, whenever Hashem does something, He does it with purpose. There isn't anything. There's not even one letter. There's not even one space in the Torah that exists that is... um, That is is for not. Okay? So everything that Hashem does, He does for a purpose. So, the question becomes, why is it that the Messiah has to be raised? Why is it that He has to uh, be resurrected, so to speak, on the first day of the week? What happened? By the way, when was the Messiah actually resurrected? Well, it was just after Havdalah. Okay? So, Because we learned that he was resurrected, it was still nighttime, and uh, Miriam uh, did not see him until the morning hour, and we're going to, this is going to kind of correlate into what we're talking about, Shabbat, but stay with me, into the morning hour, but he was actually raised after Havdalah. So whenever Havdalah happened, uh, all of a sudden resurrection happened, so therefore it was Because it's after Havdal, it's already first day of the week. Why does it have to be on the first day of the week? And the answer is, is because Rabbeinu Bakya brings down to Shemot 16, verse 5, that it was on the first day of the week that the manna began to fall. It was on the first day of the week that the manna began to fall. So the reason, in order to fit the pattern, the reason that the bread from heaven, a.k.a. Messiah Yeshua, had to be resurrected on the first day of the week, is because... That's when we began to enjoy the manna from heaven on the first day of the week. In like manner we began to receive the manna from Shemayim in the in the wilderness and then in the, in the uh, uh, yeah in the wilderness on the first day of the week. Uh, so <clears throat> going back to the to the Hala, so there is a statement here about how the manna would uh would descend. Actually, it, interestingly enough, the word is ascend, but we think about it as descending, but in fact it was us asc- descending, but in fact it was ascending because when Hashem brings something down, He's actually bringing it up. Um, and it talks about it being a layer of dew. So in Rebain Bakia's comments here to, to uh, chapter 16 and verse 13, he says, there's a Midrashic Approach in Makilta Vaisa, section 3. The Makilta again is like a midrash on Shemot. It says, How exactly did the manna descend? First, a north wind descended and cleared away all the dust of the earth. Afterward, a layer of dew descended, smoothing out the surface of the earth. Following this, the manna descended onto this layer of dew. Please note that the Torah does not speak of the manna ascending. Um, but the Torah writes the layer of dew ascending. Verse 14, this teaches that a layer of dew descended from Shemayim in order to cover the manna. It ascended onto the layer of manna which had fallen immediately before. As a result, the manna was protected from below and also from above. So there was a layer of dew below the manna and there was a layer of dew above the manna. So the manna had a hala cover. That's the point. Below and above. So it says, When we keep this in mind, we can understand why the sages said in Pesachim 30 that when placing the two halot on the sabbat table, one must put a cloth below and a cover above. Why? Because the challah represents the manna in the bamid bar, in the wilderness. And therefore, when we put a cloth below and a cloth above, we are symbolizing that it in fact is represented the manna that had a, a layer of dew below and a layer of dew be, uh, above. So this is from Abenu Bakya, as he is relating from the Makilta, and also from Pesachim 30b. No blasphemy about Yeshua there, did we? No, look at that. We read a passage of, of Talmud and Midrash, and uh, it was wonderful. Baruch Hashem, <laughs> that's what I'm talking about. Hallelujah. All right, continuing on. Let me pull out my rabbi monk here because I, I don't want to lose my place in talking about this, this uh, important concept of, of uh, Shabbat. So we're going to read in verse, um, let's see, we are in verse 15, I believe. Ani um, Yodea says, The children of Israel saw and said to one another, It is food. For they do not know what it was. And Moshe said, this is the food that Hashem has, has given for eating. This is the thing that Hashem has commanded. Gather it for every man according to what he ha- eats. And own there per person, according to the number of your people, everyone according to what is in his tent. Now, the, uh, what, did the, what did it taste like? <clears throat> so we have, in verse 14, Rabbi Monk brings down, that uh, there's a statement in Tractate Yoma 75b, which is from the Talmud Bavli. And it says that uh, the manna is described as food, and it, it tasted like wafers made with honey, or cake baked in oil, according to Numbers 11.8. So which is it? Does it taste like uh, cake with honey, or does it taste like cake with oil? And the answer is yes. To young people, explains Rabbi Yosei ben Hanina, it tasted like bread, while to infants, it tasted like honey. And as far to the older people, it tasted like oil bread, right? And uh, there's another statement in another place where it says that, uh, in fact, the manna tasted like whatever you wanted it to taste like. Hashem said, here's manna, you want it to be a T-bone steak? It's a T-bone steak. Here's manna, you want it to be beef stew? Be beef stew. Of course, it could never be as good as beef stew as my wife. But still, it tastes like beef stew. Uh, and so for the little children who like typically like sweeter things and uh they they like the milk, they like the honey, so to them it tastes like honey. Maybe it tastes like cheerios, you know, like honey nut cheerios, maybe. So verse 17. The children of Israel did so, and they gathered um they gathered whoever took more, whoever took less. They measured in an omer, whoever took more had nothing extra. Whoever took less was not lacking. Everyone, according to what he eats, they had gathered. Now there's a statement here, again, in Rabbi Monk, brought down by the sages of the Talmud. It says right here, The sages of the Talmud explain that for the Israelites who were truly God-fearing, the manna fell next to their doorstep, whereas the ordinary people had to go outside the camp to retrieve it. And as for the wicked, they had to go search for it. The moral that can be drawn here is... That as we grow closer to God and become God fearing, then He makes our sustenance easier. You know, I want to say something about that on a corporate uh, synagogue level. When we first started out so many years ago, it's been a progression. Okay, we first started out we were more uh, we were more messianic, which means we were far less observant. We we didn't have as much um, understanding. And um, instead of just going along with the flow and, and being in the status quo, we decided to branch out and, like, read the Talmud, for instance, which everybody was telling us not to. So as we read the Talmud, we got more understanding, our mind blown about all the things that Yeshua was talking about can be found in the Talmud, the Midrash, and the Zohar. And so as we began to grow, we began, of course, to become more observant. In Yeshua, of course, right? No need to abandon Yeshua. That's that's absurd. That's ridiculous. Why you need to abandon Yeshua? It's stupid. Um, So we hold on to Yeshua. He is the Mashiach. He is the atonement. He is the divine Messiah. And we follow Torah. What's the problem? But I will tell you something, and this is Hashem knows to be true. The more observant we became, the more prosperous we became as a synagogue. The more, the closer we came to authentic observance, the more Hashem blessed us. And my wife and I have talked about that many times. We can look back to the progression as we became more and more observant. Hashem brought more and more um, blessing, Parnassah, into our life. And so I'm just going to tell you that you are going to experience that as well the more and more you draw close to Hashem, the more and more you refine your mitzvah over the course of your life, the more you look at your Shabbat table and you say things like, you know, this was a really great Erev, and next week I think we'll do something a little bit different, make it a little bit better. When you look at your sukkah and you say, you know what, it's a wonderful sukkah this year, but I think next year we'll decorate it even better. Little by little, you add to the beauty of the mitzvah and you're going to find yourself more and more prosperous. And uh, that's just how Hashem operates. It's a beautiful thing. So verse 19, Moshe said to them, No man may leave over from until the morning. But they did not obey Moshe. And people left it over to the morning, and it became infested with worms, and it stank. And Moshe became angry with them, and they gathered it morning by morning, every man according to what he eats. And when the sun grew, it melted. So, uh, by the way, um, another great insight here. When the sun grew, it melted. It said, uh, And when the sun grew hot, it melted. So what happened to it? Once it melted, what happened? Well, it says here that what was left in the fields melted and flowed away into the streams and the deer and the goats drank from it And the people of other nations who hunted them and ate of their meat experienced the taste of manna and came to appreciate Israel's distinction. This is what Rashi brings down. So what we learn here is something very interesting. We take this back to the woman who was a non-Jew and she was pursuing after Messiah. And she said, my daughter is very ill. And uh, the Messiah says something to her that seemed to be rather cruel at the time. But in fact, it was a test. And he said, should I take the children's bread, manna, and give it to their dogs? And the woman said, even the dogs get the crumbs from the master's table. What's she talking about? She was obviously a studied woman. She realized that even the nations got the taste of the manna because even when the manna melted, that the manna uh, flew into the stream, was consumed by the animals, and the nations ended up getting a taste. They got a crumb of manna from the master's table. Why did Hashem do that? Because ultimately it's to attract the nations. Because if they could just get a taste and see that God is good, then they should be drawn to Him by their love. By His love, rather. This is what happened. Why did He do that, by the way? Why, why would He use that? Same reason He was... Uh, uh, well, let me go back. When we go to back to the Pesach land, there was many, 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 many Jews who still up until that time were rejecting the message. And so what did God do? Did he increase and enhance the fragrance of the Pesach lambs that were roasting? And he gave them the fragrance of Ganadin and caused those sinners, not all of them, but some of them, those sinner Jews I'm talking about, to be drawn by the fragrance of the lamb and to desire its taste. So Hashem is no respecter of persons. He said, if I cause the taste of the lamb to draw Jews, then I'm gonna cause the taste of the lamb to draw the nations. But you say, wait a minute, Rabbi, this is the taste of manna. It's not the taste of the lamb. Ah, it's the same thing. You know, we don't eat the lamb today. Why? Because we don't have a temple. But we, in fact, we do eat the lamb. What are you talking about? Whenever we break the bread and we pass it at the Pesach Seder, we're talking about this is the body of Mashiach, who is the Lamb of God. So when we eat the manna, when we eat the matzah, we're actually, in fact, eating the lamb. So therefore, when they had a taste of the manna, they had a taste of the lamb. And they were drawn. And so when the woman said, even the dogs eat the crumbs from the master's table, she was saying, look, in the wilderness, my, my ancestors ate the, 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 the crumb of the manna. And so here I am. Asking for a crumb, and Hashem said, "Because of your faith, not only will I give you a crumb; I'll give you the whole thing. You get the whole loaf. When we're satisfied with the crumbs of God, He will give us the whole loaf. Isn't God good? Isn't God mercy? He's isn't he, isn't he awesome? Wow. Verse twenty-two. Verse twenty-two. It happened on the sixth day that they gathered a double portion of food, which is why we have two halot on the table. Two omers of each, and all the princes of the assembly came and told Moshe. He said to them, this is what Hashem had spoken. Tomorrow is a rest day, a holy Sabbath to Hashem. Bake what you wish to bake and cook what you wish to cook, and whatever is left over, put away for yourselves as a safekeeping until in the morning." They put it away until morning, as Moshe had commanded. It did not stink, and there was no infestation in it. Moshe said, Eat it today, for today is a Shabbat uh, of Hashem. Today uh, you shall not find it in the field. Six days shall eat it, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath. On it there shall be none. It happened on the seventh day that some of the people went to gather, and they did not find. They still They still did not. Um, uh, did not obey, even after all of that. All right. So there's another um, uh, statement here. I want to read from Rabbi Monk to verse 22. Verse 22 says a double portion of food, lechem mishne mishne slika. So it says, citing the Midrash, Rashi comments that mishne twice has the same sense of nish tanei, which means changed. Okay. On that day, it changed into a more fragrant and tastier food. The lecha mishne double bread placed upon a Jew's table has become the symbol of the Sabbath. The reality is, is that on Shabbat, on Shabbat, we have um, a situation in which all the the fragrance and the taste of the food is enhanced. Everything is enhanced on Shabbat. There's even a statement here. Uh, let me see where I where I have that written down. There's a statement that, let's see if I can find that really quickly, trying to to hurry because I want to get to something. Uh, yeah, here it is. So verse 24, it did not stink. Whatever is set aside in honor of the Shabbat is placed under divine protection. It will not spoil or decay. You know, sometimes, um, sometimes you have people that... Uh, They're on Shabbat and maybe they're having a special diet or something like that because, you know, they're trying to lose weight or get healthy or whatever. Nothing wrong with that whatsoever. And I've made a a joke from time to time. I said, there's no calories on Shabbat. And uh, we kind of laugh and, and I mean that somewhat kiddingly. But in actuality, there is a special significance to Shabbat that when we eat, um, you know, there's a blessing in it, so I just would encourage you. I'm not saying you have to, but I'm gonna encourage you that you know, be uh, you know, don't be so cautious about fasting or, or of course, we don't fast on Shabbat, but but about limiting because you know, there is a special blessing to what we eat on Shabbat, and so just take that for what it works. So we say that there's no calories on Shabbat, then uh, I'm kind of half kidding about that, all right? So I want to get to something because we just have a few minutes left. There's a lot of other things I could share about the, the holy Sabbath. The Shabbat Kodesh. Um, uh, but let let me go here. I want to go to verse 25. Um, verse 25. Let's, let's read it here. Um, so it says here. Eat it today. The word, so the word for eat is ik luhu hayom. So it says here, Rabbi Monk brings down that the word hayom today is mentioned three times in this verse, from which our sages deduce that the Shabbat represents three different aspects, each celebrated by its own meal. So there's three meals to the Shabbat. There's the Arab Shabbat meal, and then there is the meal in the, after, the afternoon, the oneg meal, and then there is um, a meal in the late afternoon return, referred to as the third meal. So it says, this is the basis for the traditional th- eating of three meals in the Sabbath. From the Talmud to Shabbat 117b. Rabbi Munt continues on. We'll Just give me a few more minutes on this because this is uh, really good. He talks about these three meals. The first meal represented is represented of, uh, according to the Magan Avraham, the Or HaHaim 268.3, relates that the three aspects of the Shabbat to three forms of the expression, they shall rest upon it, in our Sabbath prayers. The feminine form, they shall rest upon it, is in the Arab Shabbat meal. The masculine form is found in our our, uh, Sabbath morning shakarit prayers. And... And and then the uh, the plural form, they shall rest on them, is found at Minka time. So the Friday night feminine form refers to the kala, the bride. The masculine form during the shakarit re- refers to the, the groom when Israel and uh, the Shabbat are brought together. Why? Because weddings happen during the daytime, uh, typically. And so it says uh, there's other reasons for that, but I just threw that out there. And then it says, this is where I wanted to get to, Finally, the Minka prayer marks the full and intimate union between Sabbath, Israel, and eventually all mankind. This covenant establishes the Sabbath of all mankind when the one God will be worshipped by all the nations as expressed in the phrase, uh, You are one and your name is one. When this messianic period arrives, time will take on a whole new dimension, and even the weekday will be like the Sabbath. It will be rom, uh, yom, yom Shekulu Shabbat, a day that is all Sabbath. Hence the word, or the plural word used in Minka, Bam, they shall rest on them, is employed alluding to the fact that one day all mankind will celebrate the Sabbath. So it says, these three uh, phrases of the Sabbath correspond to the three stages of universal history. Creation, revelation, and redemption. On the Sabbath day, each of these aspects is com- commemorated with a meal. So when we have the Arab Shabbat meal, we are celebrating creation. When we have Oneg, after, after Shacharit, we're having uh, the meal of revelation. And then when we have the third meal after Minka, we're having the meal that represents our redemption. To that point, in the uh, Siddur, if you have the the, uh, complete art school Siddur, the Ashkenazi on page 502, there's a comment that says, the climax of the Sabbath is described in Kabbalistic literature as a time when God receives our prayers with favor and he himself yearns for the redemption, an aspect of the day that is reflected by the Minka service of Shabbat. After Ashrei, which is recited on every Minka, we recite Ubo uh, Lezion Goel, a redeemer shall come to Zion, which confidently looks ahead to the coming of the Messiah. Therefore, the Sabbath Minka and Shemon Esrei speak of the spiritual bliss which prevail in this time of perfection, and which will one day become the universal recognition of the sovereign God. When we turn in our Siddur to Shalosh Seudos uh, on page 588, we read another commentary about the third meal. It says, in the Kabbalistic literature, the time of the third meal is referred to as the time of the favor of favors. It is the time when God is most kindly disposed towards Israel and the time when he most sympathetically receives Israel's effort towards spiritual growth. By the way, the sages also say that minka in general is the most powerful time of prayer. Strangely though, when we're talking, it says, when we talk about the third wheel, meal, the, the way of saying it in Hebrew should be, seduat shlishit, uh, shlishis, slika, shlishis. However, it is referred to as Shalosh Sheyidot, which would indicate that that means literally the three meals. And it goes on to explain that in, these, in this third meal, all the meals are combined and given significance. Why? Because the other two meals we eat because we're hungry. Partly. Obviously, we eat it for holy things, but, but we're also hungry. The third meal is eaten, eaten at a time when we're already full. And so therefore, we're already full, so therefore we're doing it simply out of love of God and simply out of a mitzvah. The same reason, oh, please hear this, the same reason why we eat the Pesach lamb. In antiquity, when we were having Pesach, when the temple existed, you would only eat the Pesach lamb after you had already eaten. You were full, you were satiated when you ate it. Why? Because eating the lamb was a mitzvah. This is why we eat of the bread. You know, when he took the bread and broke it and said, take my body and eat, the meal is already over. We've already eaten. The bread is actually the last thing you eat. The piece of matzah is actually the last thing you eat at the Pesach Seder. It is basically dessert, and you're not supposed to eat anything after it so that that bread would linger on your mouth. Why? Because that bread is the bread of redemption. So take back to the third meal. This is why the third meal is the meal of redemption. So, this is what we're going to do. I, I was studying this today, and Hashem just just said, you know, it's time to elevate. It's time to do something new. Here too. Um, after Oneg and the Birkat Amazon the synagogue, people disperse, they go home, they get ready for Havdalah, they have Minka and a lot of groups form in different places. They have Minka and third meal and study time and Havdalah and everything. Um, and uh, what we're going to do from now on though, I'm going to do anyway, and so uh, whoever is joining me, welcome to join me. But we're, I'm going to have Minka here at the shul after Birkat Hamazon. Why? Because after studying this out and Hashem, you know, we already knew about the third wheel. of course. We already in, employ it and, and do it. But just coming to the realization that the third meal is about redemption, it's about gathering the nations, gathering the holy sparks. If there's a synagogue on the planet that should be having min- minka, um, it should be lapid synagogues. Why? Because our entire existence is all about the Mashiach, all about the redemption, all about bringing in the holy sparks. End of our Aliyah today. I hope you have a beautiful, wonderful, awesome, and amazing Shabbat. Have an amazing Erev. Uh, Smile to somebody. Bless them. And listen, let's meet every single one of us. Let's meet together tomorrow here at the synagogue. And let's bless each other and uh, love on each other. Shalom, shalom. Shabbat, shalom. We'll see you tomorrow.